Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 8, and we're going to continue in this series looking at the parables that Jesus taught. Uh, this is Luke's version of them, which has some great insights. And today's one of the most uh, familiar parables of all, the parable of the sower, but I think there's going to be some rich insight. And while I teach the parable, I'm going to kill two sacred cows. You all know what sacred cows are? Yeah, there's probably somebody here thinking, oh my gosh, I came to this church, I thought it would be weird, it hasn't been weird till now, and now this dude's going to do an animal sacrifice on the stage. Now, a sacred cow is something we believe because we believe it. It's not in the Bible, it's just something we always believe because we've heard it, so we'll kill two. Let's kill one right away. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass afterward that he, Jesus, went through every city, And every village preaching and bringing the glad tidings or the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. They're the apostles. And Luke says there were certain women there. And he actually names who they are that were healed by evil spirits and infirmities. One was called Mary. And she was from Magdala. Out of whom came seven demons. Did you ever see anyone possessed by seven demons? I haven't. I I don't want to. I can just imagine what she looked like. And Joanna, the wife of Chuza, Herod Steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. So we get this idea that Jesus, as he traveled, had 12 apostles or 12 disciples, and that was it, that leadership was male, and that the men were doing the work of the church. Nothing is farther from the truth. The preponderance of evidence in Scripture is that there's no... Jew or Gentile, no bond or free, no male or female. The gifts of Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4 have been laid out on the entire church. And it looks like Jesus' entourage was much bigger here. It included women. Luke mentions them by name. And he even says that there were others. And those others could have been all women or it could have been men and women. But Jesus had a much bigger party. And, and, and I'm not here to teach about this today. I just want to say this. I am so very proud of all the women who use their gifts at Calvary Chapel, who lead and disciple, and I wouldn't have it any other way, so I'm glad you guys are with us. Okay, on to the parable, verse 4. And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke to them this parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture, had no root system. Uh, Verse 7 says, some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it, and they were choked out. But then there was seed that fell on good ground. It sprang up, it yielded a crop a hundredfold. Other gospels say 30, 60, and a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, Jesus said something that only he ever says in the Gospels. He says it 14 times. He who has ears, let him hear. And he's talking about a hearing that is beyond physical hearing. There's something spiritual here, something very important. In fact, if you jump down a few verses at 18, he says, Therefore take heed now how you hear, for whoever has to him more will be given, and whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away. Now, this parable was so important, it was so groundbreaking, that in the next verse, the disciples come and say, Lord, what does this parable mean? Mark, in his gospel, tells us that they took Jesus aside, just the twelve, that they wanted to understand this parable in a deeper way. And again, there's something 
rich here because Jesus said, if you don't understand this parable, you won't understand any of the parables. This unlocks all the other parables, all that we'll ever know about the kingdom of God. Now, many of you have heard this parable taught many ways. You know, I've heard it taught from the perspective that God wants us to bear fruit and sometimes there's an area in our life where we're not bearing fruit because there's weeds or thorns and we have to do some weed whacking so we produce more fruit or, you know, break up the fallow ground and I guess there's some application there. Sometimes it's taught from the perspective that, wow, you might not really be a Christian because you're not bearing fruit and you, you were just this excited hearer and, and I always struggle with that because People already wonder if they're once saved, always saved. Now, this just adds to the confusion and the guilt and all that. And I think it brings a whole lot more condemnation than good. Can I really tell you what I think the parable is about this morning? This is my insight. Read it on your own. Form your own opinion. I think Jesus was trying to encourage his followers and all of us the power of the seed of the word of God to change a human heart. It's really an encouragement towards evangelism. Uh, If you really think about it, it says here, Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom. That word preaching there is caruso. It means to evangelize, to herald, to make a very important announcement. It's far different from a word used for teaching where Jesus would sit down and teach the Sermon on the Mount. This is a direct proclamation that something new and inspiring is going on And basically, it's that salvation had come to all people, regardless of class and ethnicity and culture. God's righteousness and power to heal was available to everyone. Now, you and I have been witnesses to some amazing conversions, maybe your own. And I still think the greatest miracle in all the world is a changed life. I really do. You know, you can heal someone of blind eyes, you can raise the dead. All those things are wonderful, and there's been great miracles through history. But I still marvel at a changed life. Uh, Sometimes we'll go do ministry somewhere, and we'll be with someone who, someone will say, man, that guy is just a great guy. And I say, man, I know that guy before he was a Christian. He was obnoxious, he was this and that. And I tell you, I look at him every day and say, only by the power of God could he ever be changed. The greatest miracle in all the world is to take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. And when you see someone come to Christ, it's one of the most powerful things that you'll ever see. Jesus, who would tell his group of followers, go into all the world and preach the gospel, kind of takes a peek behind the curtain and shows us how it really works. And it's really inspiring. You know, so much of the time in our lives, and I don't know if it's because of rejection or because we get busy where we kind of get our mind on the smaller picture of our lives and not the grander picture, that we really forget why God's left us here. That we have this amazing purpose to bring people into the reality of what we know to be true. That not only has Jesus saved us, and not only has he redeemed us and put our feet on solid ground, but but there's a future for us. That one day we're going to be resurrected. This is only a worldview the Hebrews had. That we're not going to be reincarnated. We're not going to become one with the earth. We don't have a Lion King theology. One day we're going to be resurrected in these bodies. In a world that God's going to recreate and make all things right. And I think every once in a while as believers, we need to sit down. Our church needs to sit down. 
We need to ask ourselves about the meaning of life, the centrality of the gospel message. We need to think about eternity and how short life really is. And every once in a while, we need to reflect on this and do inventory and ask ourselves, why are we here? And what is our purpose? Are we just going to live to 70 or 80 and leave a nice house to our kids and a nice bank account? Is that what it's all about? Because my Bible says the Gentiles can do that. Is it all about riding it out to the end in comfort? You know, the Gentiles can do that. Or is it looking at what God's done in our lives and saying, Lord, we want to take a boatload of people with us? Because people are your greatest treasure in the world. And the only thing that's going to last in all eternity is God's word and people. And life is short. And God wants us to take people with us. We are his plan for evangelism in this world. Now, for a lot of people, this scares us. We don't like messages like this. But the parable of the sower is to encourage us that it's not about us. You know, when, when I sit on a plane, I'm tired, I want to sleep, I'm afraid of rejection. But I know it's a divine appointment that that person is a captive audience for me to sow seed for two to three hours. That's why they're there. God arranged it. And I've been rejected far more times than you can think. But I've learned that the power is in the seed, not in the sower. And it's not in my methodology. You know, whether I throw seed down like this or with a spreader or over my shoulder or through my legs, the seed still goes out. Disciples come and say, Lord, what does this parable mean? Verse 11, he says, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Now, the word of God, you can think of it in so many ways, but even in a non-agrarian society like ours, there is still no better description of God's word than seed. It's more than words on a page, right? David said, thy word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word is alive, it's powerful, greater than any two-edged sword. It is the logos, the rhema of God. Jesus is the word, right? But seed is a great description. Why? Number one, seed can't be created. You can't manufacture seed. Now, today they have hybrids of seed. You know, your baby boy tomatoes are hybrid seeds, but those tomato seeds won't produce another baby boy's uh, tomato plant. Seed has to be reproduced. See, you, you can't bring anybody to Christ by yourself. It is the seed of God's word. Sometimes people will come up to me in the cafe and they say, Pastor Bob, I got this uncle. And he has all these questions about science and history. And if only you would come to my house and argue with this guy, I know he would become a Christian. And I'm like, no, I'm not coming to your house because he won't become a Christian. Do you know why? Because I have uncles that aren't saved. And if I was the magic bullet and the answer and I had all the great arguments, then my whole family would be saved and they're not. Sometimes it's the silliest things we say that spark faith in someone. It's remarkable. The other thing about seed is it's alive. This isn't a dead book. You look at seed in your hand, it looks dead, it looks like it can't do anything, but you put it in the ground and it'll produce. Uh, this is fascinating if you think about it. For much of the history of the world, agriculture is how society flourished. And then we moved into the industrial age, and then the age of technology. Now we're in the information age, and we've only cycled back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, 
The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was information. And just like DNA, and just like seed, the Word of God has all the components that can go into heart and mind and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. The other thing about seed is that seed can be dormant for a long time, but when it's sown, it can still reproduce. Uh, we've all heard stories of people in archaeological digs, and maybe they're at the um, pyramids, and they find seed, and it's been there for thousands of years, and they put it in the ground, and it still grows. But maybe you find seed in your garage, and you plant it, and it grows. Seed can be dormant for a long time. And I love this part of the Word of God, because when I became a Christian, I remembered seven distinct times where the gospel was preached to me that I never remembered until I got saved. Anybody had that experience? I used to lay in bed, 15 years old, late 70s, listening to sports radio. Now, a lot of people say, well, sports radio didn't come around until 1986. No, it was here before that. I used to listen to this guy, and I used to have the radio right in my bed. And uh, one night I fell asleep, and I woke up at 3 in the morning, and there was a guy on the radio talking about the end of the world. His name was Hal Lindsey. He had just written a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And it was a New York Times bestseller, and I was fascinated. And I thought, I've never heard anything like this in my church. When I get up in the morning, the first thing I'm going to do is buy this book. I was so excited. I never remembered that night until I became a Christian. But that seed lied dormant at me for almost seven years. My favorite story about dormant seed is the man who runs the Bowery Mission in New York. At the turn of the start of the 20th century, the Bowery Mission um, really ministered to a lot of people who were down and out on their luck. Now that whole area has been gentrified, it's called Soho, and doesn't have the influence it once had. But like all missions, they would make you sit in a big chapel, uh, hear a worship and a message, and then they would usher you in and feed you. So this gentleman was on cocaine, he was in his 30s, and he was down and out, and he needed a meal. And he was sitting in the chapel, and none of the music was moving him. He wasn't even listening to the message. But he looked up on the wall, and there was a series of scriptures there. And when he read that scripture, something in his mind was triggered that he heard that scripture in Sunday school, and God literally saved him on the spot. Today he's, excuse me, he's 72 years old, and he leads the Bowery Mission, one of the greatest stories of dormant seed I've ever heard. And finally, uh, the word of God is like seed when you look at the ratio to harvest factor. You know, you cast all the seed, but when one hits, 30, 60, there's an exponential multiplying effect. So Jesus said the seed is the word of God, verse 11. Then he said in verse 12 that those who are by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts lest they should believe and be saved. So if the seed is the word of God, then what Jesus is going to explain about the soils are the condition of men's hearts. The people that you and I are talking to, their hearts are in all types of different conditions. Everybody has a different personality. They've been through a different set of circumstances in life. And uh, sometimes that seed is going out and people are hearing it in different ways. The first seed, Jesus said, fell by the wayside. Now, Israel's very rocky, very hilly. 
So sometimes they would sow in terraces or they had no borders, no fences. What would happen is right through the field there would be a walking path. And it would become real hard pack, almost like cement. And whenever sowers would go out, some of that seed would fall on that hard soil like rock. And the birds would come immediately and take it away. Uh, Jesus said when you preach the gospel, when you tell someone about his love and his grace, there are times where you will instantly be rejected. Anybody ever had that happen to them? Yeah, and when that happens, we want to give up, right? We want to quit. Man, I'm not good at this. I don't know what I'm saying. I don't have all the right arguments. I don't even know why I bother. But Jesus is telling us ahead of time, up to 25% of the time, you may be flat out rejected. And what happens here is that we're ashamed. Sometimes we sit in our cubicle and we're like, well, I can't tell anybody about Christ. I won't get invited to the church, I mean, to the company softball game, or they won't invite me to dinner. I won't get promoted. The gospel will be rejected by some. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. Jesus said, take that blame off your shoulders. The Old Testament calls people like this stiff-necked. They're cynical, argumentative, beaten down, and desensitized because of a life of sin. They just got really hard hearts. You can tell these people today they're still stiff-necked. Like when I invite my relatives to something like the Potter, the greatest gospel presentation I've ever seen, assured everyone will get saved, and I think they must have stiff necks because they're always looking at the floor like this. Know anybody like that? You're like, how could you not be moved by this? Because their hearts are hard. Now, it doesn't mean we give up and there's no hope. God might just have to break up the fallow ground of their heart. It might take more seed than we can imagine. Jesus said he just moved on to another city. This has happened to me more times than I can think of. I've had times where I've had friends over and shared something with them, and they're like, oh, yeah, this is great. Call them the next day. They were talked right out of it. You will be rejected, but it doesn't mean you stop sowing seed. I want to say one other thing here. Because so many people after services talk to me about their family. Oh, my husband. Oh, my children. Oh, my... Look, we all have family that's lost. And we've doused them with so much seed, I don't know if they can take anymore. You know what we need to do? We need to look around and realize there's a lot of people in this world. And I'm glad you were born in your family, and I love my family, but we need to get our eyes on a bigger picture. If your family's hurt, go out and tell somebody else. Pray and ask God to set up situations You know, just get your eyes off the smaller picture, on the grander picture, that there are people out there waiting, and they need seed to be sown in their hearts. Verse 13, Jesus said, there's ones who fell on rocks, and the soil was very shallow, and uh, these have no root. They believe for a while, and then when temptation comes, they fall away. Uh, We all know people like this, and... um, You know, it's strange. You scratch your head. These are people that believe, and they're in our churches. Um, But you scratch your head and say, you know, is it me? Or, like, they seem to love God, but there's never any fruit in their lives. They, They seem shallow in some ways. These can be the hardest people to minister to. 
They have joy. They're positive. There never seems to be tears of repentance. They may have acquiesced to the gospel for all the wrong reasons, social impact, economic impact. Maybe they were excited, like they heard about the end times. I was buying a book one time on prophecy, and when I was checking out of Barnes & Noble, the girl said, oh, you're reading that book, huh? And I said, yeah, have you ever read anything on prophecy? She said, oh, yeah, I read all those books years ago. Nothing ever happened, and I don't even go to church anymore. Jesus said there's some people who, when temptation comes, they're just going to fall away. Verse 14, some fell among thorns or weeds, and when they heard, they went out and got choked up with cares, riches, and the pleasures of life, and they can't bring fruit to maturity. Again, these are people that were genuinely excited. They were tracking with Jesus, and then the bottom fell out. Oscar Maru is the pastor of Nairobi Chapel. He'll be with us in the fall at our Compassion and Justice weekend. Uh, Oscar asks a question that will keep you up at night, or it should. He said, are the things you're living for worth what Christ died for? Are the things you're living for worth what Christ died for? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says that the, the love of Christ compels us. For we are convinced that one died for all, then all died. And Jesus died for all that those who live, that's me and you, should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. Whenever we hear that, we always take it the wrong way. Like, oh yeah, i got to live for Jesus. It's the end of my life. It's the end of your life because that's when life begins. Even Christian bookstores will have all the books about what Jesus can do for you. The better marriage, the better finances, which is so counterintuitive because Jesus said, you know, if you go all in with me and seek first the kingdom, I'll add all these things. They'll follow you. These type of people are the people who seem to be tacking Jesus on to what they already have. I have this going in my life, this going in my life. I'll add Jesus for a little fire insurance. But when the cares of life come, and the pleasures, and the neon lights of what we can do and have, these people fall away. Jesus unequivocally said in Matthew 6, 24, you can't serve God and money. And the word there is a slave. You're either a slave to one master or the other. He said, you're either going to love God and hate money, or you're going to love money and hate God. And you can't do both. Now, you can love God and use money. So as Jesus unpacks this parable, he tells us that our job is to sow, not worry about results. It takes all the pressure off of us. And yes, we'll be rejected. And yes, some people will endure for a while. That's not the problem. But here's where the payoff comes. It tells us in verse 15, but then the seed fell on good ground. Those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. The other gospel writer says 30, 60, and 100 fold. When you see a life changed, and you know, some water, some plant, God gives the increase. Somewhere along the line, if God lets you be the closer, like you lead that person in the sinner's prayer, it would be one of the greatest things that ever happens in your life. To realize you had a part in a whole life being changed. I think about the guy that witnessed to me. He was a leader in his youth group, a strong Christian. He was going to go to a Christian college. 
God told him to go to a secular college. He got there. After the first day, he cried on his bed, thought he made the biggest mistake in his life. He led me and three other men to Christ in four years. All four of us are in the ministry today. And you think about how that seed is produced. I don't know about the other guys. I know about my life. No one in my house ever went to college. My mom married three alcoholics. And my whole life has been changed and a whole generation will be changed in my family. And then there's this church and all that we do and the radio program. The seed is producing exponentially because it fell on ground and he cast his seed. And there's not a day that I wonder what would have happened if he was shy or if he was ashamed in front of college kids not to share the good news of the gospel with me. Jesus taught this parable to say, this is what can happen. If you sow seed, it might not happen today and it might not happen tomorrow, but one day it's going to click and it's going to hit and people are going to be changed and they're going to know what you know and they're going to know what eternal life is and they're going to communicate with God and they're going to read books and they're going to be in love with God and people and they're going to live in community and one day they're going to be resurrected. And you get to tell people all this good news. Greatest miracle in all the world is a changed life. John Piper said, Christian conversion is a supernatural, radical thing. The heart is changed and the evidence is just not new decisions, but new affections and new feelings. Feelings like, I want to go to church. I want to be where God's people are. I want to read the Bible. Eric Taxis, who wrote Bonhoeffer, said when he became a Christian, instantly he knew sleeping with his girlfriend was wrong. He never read it in the Bible. No one ever told him. He just instantly knew it was wrong. He had new affections, new loves. Joy Davidman said, I was changed. I have been turning into a different person ever since that half minute. John Newton from the hymn Amazing Grace said, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And the great C.S. Lewis said, until you have given up yourself on him, you will not have a real self. C.S. Lewis is one of the great conversions in all history, not only because he was an atheist, but because he wrote a book about it called Surprised by Joy. C.S. Lewis knew from an early age that there was something existential about him, something he longed for outside of himself. He knew that God had put eternity in his heart. And he said that his conversion occurred while he was sitting in his brother's sidecar on the way to the London Zoo. Sounds really strange. He said, when I left for the zoo, I didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And when I arrived an hour and a half later, I did. Now, going to the zoo tomorrow will not save your relatives. Okay, this isn't a method. Remember, it's the seed of the Word of God. He said as a child he had a deep longer for this joy, this existential idea. But um, he was really struck when his mother died at nine because he prayed for her that she would be healed. And he was sent to boarding schools that he said were miserable. And finally World War I sealed the deal on his atheism because he saw things no human being should see. Friends died and mutilated. Later on at Oxford he had a love for literature, poems, myths, fables, fairy tales, and he ran into a man called J.R.R. Tolkien, who you know from Lord of the Rings fame. Tolkien was a devout Catholic. They would go on walks every day. And it was Tolkien who moved Lewis from being what he calls an atheist to a theist. He said, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and I knelt and prayed, 
perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant atheist in all of England. Tolkien later said, Lewis, you love myths. Why don't you read the resurrection as a myth and then consider the evidence that it's actually historical? Lewis did this for nine days. And after nine days sitting in that sidecar, he contemplated it finally in that hour and a half on the way to the zoo. And he made his decision for Christ. And he was changed forever and never looked back. The seed that was sown in him in an early age and by Tolkien and all the people along the way made this man one of the great apologists in history. He's the quotable Lewis. And a life changed. Can you stand one more story? Tal Brook is lesser known. Raised by uh, very intellectual parents, he went to Georgetown and later Cal Berkeley, but it was the 1960s, so everybody was dropping out and dropping acid. and So he got involved in Eastern mysticism so much that he went to India and studied under a guru named Sai Bobby. When he got to India, he got disenchanted with Eastern mysticism when he saw what was going on behind the scenes. And he writes a story in a book called Lord of the Air. He was burnt out, he was broke, he was in Mexico, and he went up to a newsstand to buy a Coca-Cola. And there were magazines hanging there, and one of the magazines was Life Magazine, and on the cover was a balding, overweight man who was baptizing hippies like Tal Brook in the Pacific Ocean at Corona Del Mar. The man's name was Chuck Smith. He looked at that picture, and he couldn't take his eyes off it. Something in that picture, he just he resonated with it. Got on a plane, went to California, gave his life to Christ, became again one of the great uh, apologists of the last half century. This is all supernatural stuff. This isn't because anybody had the corner on evangelism or, or the right methods. It's because Peter, who was there when Jesus taught the parable, would later write that we've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but the incorruptible seed, the word of God that lives and abides forever. You've heard me say this a thousand times. I have no trust in any illustration I give you, any story. The only trust I have is in the seed of God's word to go into a heart and mind and produce 30, 60, and 100 fold. That's the only confidence I have. And the good news is that's the confidence that we all should have. That God's going to set up these divine appointments and all we have to do is open our mouth. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. Jesus' mission was to seek and save that which was lost. He's the ultimate sower. People are his treasure. His only treasure in the world. And he loves people so much he told the early church, go into all the world and preach the gospel. God is long-suffering that none should perish. That's why He's waiting till that final day until all would come to the knowledge of who he is. In many ways, what Jesus is saying to us today, and we need to let this sink in, is that we are his only sowers. That's why we're here. We're the only ones that can do this. Book of Revelation says the angels are going to preach the everlasting gospel one time. And God's not going to write his name in the sky. He said, you are my sowers. You're my hands, you're my feet. And if you don't do it, no one's going to do it. Parable ends when he says in verse 16, no one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel 
or puts it under a bed, but rather he puts it on a lampstand that those who enter it may see the light. If you're living a contagious Christian life, people are going to see the light. They're going to ask you questions. They're going to take you aside. There's times where you're going to have to share. We get so caught up in what the world's doing. The world's going to do what they've always done. They're going to eat, drink, be merry, do bad things. That's what the world does. The harvest isn't the problem. The world's not the problem. Jesus said the problem is the lack of workers. The lack of sowers who will go out and sow their seed. This parable is very encouraging to me, especially when we're 20 days away from our greatest evangelistic effort, and that's doing church out on that lawn. And we set aside 10 nights, and we're just throwing seed out there. I don't care what anybody says on how we do it. I don't care if people criticize it, tell us how we should do it, we should do it another way. All we're doing is throwing seed out there. And seeing what God might do. And we need you guys involved in this. This needs to be our greatest endeavor. Everyone you come in contact with, you need to see every encounter as a chance to sow seed. And look, if you're rejected, great. Maybe you're planting, maybe you're watering. God gives the increase. Some of you have the gift of personal evangelism. The gift of personal evangelism is where you enjoy the whole process. You love getting rejected. Um, You love praying with people that come to Christ. People do come to Christ. It's a special gift. But we all can cast seed. Every last one of us. And it all starts with prayer. It all starts with prayer where we say, God, identify today. Show me a divine appointment. Someone I can speak to. And listen, I'm just like you, right? I get on airplanes and I'm tired and I want to go to sleep or read something I want to read. And yet I know God has put this person next to me Because it's a three-hour trapped audience, and I'm going to take advantage of it. Because I believe that's why we're here. And it may be the only time they ever hear. I was golfing one time, and this couple, they were retired, and we were golfing. They asked me what I did for a living, and I said I was a pastor. And, you know, time went on. And after the golfing was over, I was eating by myself, and the wife came and circled around. And she sat down. She said, do you have a website? And I said, yeah. She goes, well, I have a lot of questions. I said, what are they? She said, well, you know, I'm Jewish. My husband's Catholic. My daughter's involved in this. And I'm getting older. And I lived a lot of life. And there's a lot of questions I need answered. And we spent an hour there. And she wrote down our website. This is how God works. We pray. God identifies people. We're bold. And we begin to scatter seed. Now let's kill that second sacred cow and we'll be done. Verse 19, it says, Then his mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some saying, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And Jesus, not being disrespectful at all, answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Was Mary a perpetual virgin who only had Jesus? No, she had at least five other children that we know of in Scripture. So there's that sacred cow. And Jesus wasn't being disrespectful. He loved his mother. He loved his brothers. But he said, you know what? The human race is more than biology. And my mother and my brothers are those who love God and keep his word and do it. 
And guys, that's the family we're in. Yes, we have a biological family. But we have the ability to reproduce, to bring people into the kingdom who aren't our brothers and who aren't our mothers and graft them into this family in the kingdom of God as part of God's family. You and I hold the most potent force in the universe, the word of God, 30, 60, and 100-fold. That's what's going to change Baltimore. That's what's going to change individual lives. That's what's going to get people off of drugs. That's what's going to get people into heaven. And all God wants us to do is sow. Just sow. That's all you have to do. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that it's rich, it's powerful, that any two-edged sword. Lord, your word can get between joint and bone and marrow and soul and spirit. Lord, things that people are struggling with, they're deep and longing questions. Lord, your word can penetrate. It's powerful. And Lord, we know that you love people. You love them more than we do. Your shoulders are much broader. So Lord, this week, open our eyes to the times that we can sow. Bring to our memory the people we need to call and the divine appointments you would have with us. Lord, help us to get out of the boat, out of our comfort level, and tell people about your great love, that they might experience all that is so familiar to us and that we take for granted. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.